Let's see if this resonates with anyone. Hockey, baseball, football, basketball, all sports are the same. That's what power skater Laura Stam writes. And she continues, what I mean by this is all sports share the same fundamental principles of force application. There's power involved. The principles are identical, although forces are applied differently across sports. But essentially, all sports are the same. Does anyone here agree with that? All sports are the same? AFL, soccer, rugby, they all have a ball. Forces applied to them. Does that make them the same? Yeah? Boxing, I know. Um, what about rugby league and rugby union? They both have rugby in the name. And I know we're in South Australia. It's not exactly a rugby sport, but I, I, I was brought up and born in Brisbane. And so I'm all about rugby. Uh, they're both called rugby. Are they basically the same thing? <laughs> Total difference. Yeah, if you're a supporter of those codes, then you'll know that that claim is not true. Um, and anyone making such a claim would simply just be ignorant. You know, they don't care about sports. Or it's just a bit of a lazy claim. And if you're a fan and someone was saying at a barbecue, the rugby union, rugby league, it's all the same thing. Well, you, would, you wouldn't think twice before standing up and correcting them on their misunderstanding. Because only a small amount of research would yield that in rugby league, you're allowed six tackles. And then after six tackles, there has to be a turnover of the ball, goes to the other team. Uh, and, but in union, you keep the ball until you've lost possession of it. And then that's when the turnover happens. So the two games operate at a different pace. Now, what about the claim that all religions are the same? They all have an application of faith. Are all religions the same? If at that same barbecue, someone claimed that Islam... Christianity, Judaism, they're all the same because they, they all worship the God of Abraham, right? Whose role would it be to clarify that claim that there are many versions of the one God? Well, the answer to that one is actually pretty simple. It's Montaz's job. If you were at the barbecue, you would give Montaz a call and say, hey, you've got to get over here. Uh, no. As Christians, as believers, as Jesus fans, it's our role to clarify those sort of misunderstandings. And in this passage today, the Apostle Paul gives some very direct answers to that very question, that no, not all religions are the same, and in fact there is only one true God. Here in Athens, which was the centre of Greek life, it had the centre of thought and religion, it was the Oxford University of the day. It was the birthplace of philosophers like Socrates and Plato. Aristotle lived there as well. And it's the place that democracy was first conceived. It was, and is still known for its art and architecture. And the most decorated of the buildings were the temples that were built to lots of different pagan gods. The Acropolis, the Acropolis sorry, was the visual point of Athens. It's there in the photo. Um, and it was an elevated part of the city where people went to worship the gods. And the centerpiece of the apocalypse, apocalypse, the Acropolis, we're going to be going through so many Greek terms today. The Acropolis was the Parthenon where people would come and visit. 
The people that lived in Athens would take a little bit of this, a little bit of that idea, and they would adapt them to build their worldview and their belief systems. They'd go with the flow. They'd throw around ideas, and it was the sort of place where people were committed to nothing, but they talked about everything. And there was a God for every occasion. They were sitting around, drinking coffee, chewing over the latest trends. Does that sound like any other city that you know? In our city here in Adelaide, there is much diversity of people, of culture, and of language. And there's an abundance of ideas. But God's word transcends all culture, and he changes people's lives, no matter what their background. And on this second missionary journey, Paul is in the city of Athens, and he presents this life-changing message to the people. The way that Paul engaged the Athenians in this passage is relevant and instructive for today. Paul faced many of the same challenges that we face today. It's a culture that's rife with idolatry. There's pluralistic and synchristic thinking, which are just big words that mean the acceptance and the amalgamation of lots of different ideas. And a culture where biblical literacy is low. But despite these challenges, Paul proclaimed the truth and he presented the gospel message to the Athenians. So today we're going to have a look at this interaction with the Athenians. That Paul had a troubled spirit and a willingness to engage with them. He proclaimed the truth with God, about God, but he also received a range of responses. So let us pray. Heavenly Father, we just pray that no matter where, where we are in our walk with you, um, that you will open our ears and our hearts today to this message. We just pray that you'll still our minds and still our hearts so that we could be open to hear this. In your name, amen. So how did Paul come to find himself in Athens? At the beginning of chapter 17, he was, mis- he was um, speaking in Thessalonica with his companions, Tim- Timothy and Silas. And the message that they were speaking um, offended the local Jewish leaders, so much so that they stirred up the crowd against them. So they had to leave Thessalonica and they went to Berea. And that's in verse 10. Um, but when the Thessalonian Jews heard that they journeyed to Berea, then those, um, those Jewish leaders also came to Berea and they stirred up the crowds there. So once again, Paul has to depart. So this was all in chapter 17. Um, Paul leaves and he leaves Timothy and Silas in Berea. And he makes a three or four day journey to Athens. He sends word back to Timothy and Silas, asking them to join him. But that's going to take a week or two. So here Paul is spending some time alone in Athens, investigating the city and its culture. Verse 16, while Paul was waiting for them in Athens, he was greatly distressed to see that the city was full of idols. But we see a pattern on how Paul approaches his mission. In verse 2 and verse 10 of chapter 17, As was his custom, Paul went to the synagogue in Thessalonica. On arriving there in Berea, they went to the Jewish synagogue. And also in verse 17, Paul goes to the synagogue. Paul himself was a Jew. He loved his people. So he went to the synagogue first to speak with his people. The synagogue had both Jews and God-fearing Greeks who were Gentile believers but had not yet been circumcised. Those that were attending the synagogue believed in God, but they didn't know Jesus, um, nor did they know 
their need for him. And so it was customary for Paul to go there first and share the gospel with them. But here in Athens, he's in a city full of gods and full of idols. And in verse 16, we see he's greatly distressed by what he sees. So he divides his time first between the synagogues, but then also the marketplace, which is where people congregated. And the marketplace isn't a supermarket like Woolworths or Coles, but rather think of it more like Rundle Mall or Adelaide Central Markets. It's a place where people go not just to buy things, but also to meet each other and to hang out and to interact. It's not unusual that settings like that, that you'd be able to engage in conversations with strangers, people that you don't know. It's worthwhile asking ourselves, though, are our spirits troubled by what we see in our neighbourhoods throughout Adelaide? Are we distressed by what we see? Or have we become desensitised, withdrawing into our own bubble? Paul was so provoked by what he saw that he reasoned with the Athenians. And the word translated reasoning there is where we get the same word dialogue. He talked to them in a reasonable dialogue. We ourselves, we ought not to get desensitised to our community and our surroundings. Nor do we need to be at the other end of the spectrum where we feel so overwhelmed about the fallen state of the world. But rather, we need to increase our awareness of the idols, the ideas that are around, surrounding in our lives and of those that we interact with. And looking for those opportunities to patiently and respectably reason with people about Jesus and the resurrection. Paul purposed to do that. It wasn't by chance. It was purposeful effort that brought him to make contact with folks there in the marketplace and to whom ultimately he would be able to preach Jesus to. Among those in the marketplace were some Epicurean and Stoic philosophers. And we see in verse 18, a group of uh, philosophers began to debate with him. Some of them said, what is this babbler trying to say? Others, he's advocating for foreign gods. And just a little bit about Epicurean and Stoic. Epicurus was a Greek philosopher. He lived about 300 years before Christ. And the Epicureans sought contentment by finding a serene, a serene detachment from the world. They believed in gods, but they viewed these gods as remote. They were far away. And there was no divine intervention in life and no divine punishment afterwards. So this led them to lead a materialistic view of life. And they wouldn't be held to account on the way that they would be lived. Consequently, for them, there was nothing to fear, but there was also nothing to hope for. Life was a matter of chance, and the aim was to enjoy it while it lasted, until luck ran out. Stoicism was profounded by Zeno, who lived about the same time as Epicurus. The Stoics were pantheistic, which means the belief that all the forces in the universe are God and, God and God's manifest through nature. They saw the material world itself as having a soul, which determined, in a fatalistic way, the events of life. God was constrained within creation, and there was nothing of God outside of it. So they sought to find happiness in accepting nature as it existed, and then finding their place within it. Both the Epicureans and the Stoics looked down at religious beliefs as superstition. In today's terms, 
Epicureans saw life as a lottery, where you take your chances, while the Stoics were fatalists, seeing nature as an impersonal force which determines our destinies. Epicureans focused on living for pleasure, while the Stoics just gritted their teeth and accepted their fate. And across our world today, in our city here in Adelaide, superstition, chance, fatalism, they continue to be common creeds. These philosophers heard Paul's message in the marketplace and they brought him to the Areopagus on Mars Hill before some of the most astute philosophers in Athens. I think there's a photo. Oh, no. Yep, there's a photo there. Um, These philosophers, they had no interest in the gospel. Paul was simply a novelty for them. They sat in their midst. Paul was just a specimen that would amuse their interest for a while telling them and hearing them some, and telling them and, so they could hear something new, as we see in verse 21. Their favourite pastime was to chew the fat over new ideas. But despite this, Paul accepts the invitation they extend. If you've done any public speaking, then you know how important your opening senses, uh, sentences are. Will they engage your listeners? Or are you going to be antagonising them from the get-go? Greek orators were expected to start with complimentary comments about the city that they visited, and we see that today in speeches. Usually the first couple of lines is saying something nice about the city that someone is visiting. And Paul, being provoked by the adultery that he observed in the city, he used that as the starting point, but he used it in a positive way. Instead of attacking them, he affirms and commends them for their interest in religion. And it's a tactful start. With a, bit of, with a bit of irony built in there. He gets underway using one of their objects of worship, an altar that he discovered to the unknown God. And this was a great introduction because it was both intriguing, but it underscored his central message that he'd be able to point towards God, the God that had actually made himself known. But the God that Paul was proclaiming was not a man-made God who lived in a man-made temple. That God did not need our help, protection, or service. That God, who made the entire world and everyone in it, that God was entirely self-sufficient. He did not need us, uh, but we are utterly dependent on him. And these things that Paul was going to unpack would have fundamentally inverted the viewpoint of these philosophers. So let's have a look closely at his message to the Athenian philosophers. Uh, Verse 22, Paul stood up at the Areopagus and he said, People of Athens, I see in many ways you are very religious. For as I walked around and looked carefully at your objects of worship, I even found an altar with an inscription to an unknown God. So you are ignorant of the very thing that you worship. And this is what I'm going to proclaim to you. Paul's audience was indifferent and ignorant about God. And his message has some essential elements essential elements about proclaiming truth to such an audience. And it's an audience that exists today. Instead of starting his teaching about God from the scriptures, like he did with the Jews, he started from something that there was some commonality with the Athenians. And that was just a basic human experience of the natural world and our inbuilt need and desire to understand, well, where did it come from? Firstly, Paul understood 
the worldview of his audience, and he connected with them where they were at. He found common ground that would aid his arguments about their need for Jesus. The many idols that were around, and he used that as the starting point, that the Athenians were very religious people. And all people are innately religious. We all worship something, if not God. The common ground here was being religious. But if Paul had have attacked their religion, they would have become defensive and walls would have gone up. But likewise, if Paul ignored the religion, their pantheistic religion convictions, then, and if all he did was proclaim Christ, they would have just seen him as someone speaking about a foreign god. Because in pantheism, gods were localized and they had influence and power over geographic boundaries. And so talking about this Christ, they would have just seen it as a god from a distant land that had no importance or power over the Athenians. There were gods that were rulers over that territory. So Paul needed to build a bridge and to gain their attention and to build a case for the superiority of Jesus over all these other gods. He pointed out that as he passed an altar, it was engraved with an inscription to an unknown god. So Paul would tell them the truth about who this particular god was that they did not know. After finding common ground and identifying the bridge, he told them about who God is. Verse 24, God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in temples built by human hands. God is creator. Paul declared the true nature of this unknown God by using the Greek word theos, which had been used in the writings of the philosophers as the personal name for the one supreme God. The true God was different from the various pantheon gods. This true God was greater than nature because he is the creator and therefore rules over all of creation. The Greek gods were part of nature and they were created beings themselves, often the offspring of each other. And some of these gods were able to control aspects of nature. However, the true God created all. And the true God rules over all nature. The true God is far beyond anything men could build, unlike the Greek gods that would use the temples that the Athenians had built as their homes. Verse 25, And he is not served by human hands if he needed anything. Rather, he himself gives everything life and breath and everything else. Gives everyone, sorry. God is the source of life. The gods of the pantheon were served by humans. Their mythologies were full of stories of gods manipulating humans to get what they wanted. The true God is autonomous. He needs nothing from man. And God is active. All that he is doing is a function of his good and his gracious character. And he's not manipulating man into gaining for himself. On the other hand, man needs everything from God for he is the giver of life and the breath of all things. Verse 26. From one man he made all the nations, that they should inhabit the whole earth, and he marked out their appointed times in history and the boundaries of their lands. God is the ruler. The various Greek gods warred against each other, using humans as the means to gain additional territory and to get more control for themselves. 
The true God is far beyond any of the Greek gods, for he is over every nation on earth, and not just some local area or some people group. The true God is the source of creation of all the nations, and this true God sets out those boundaries in time and in space. Verse 27, God did this so that they would seek him and perhaps reach out to him and find him, though he is not far from any one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being, as some of our own poets, as some of your own poets have said, we are his offspring. God is approachable and is not an idol. The gods of the Greeks were not approachable. They could be near or far away, and if you met one, you never really knew what sort of response you would get. The true God is not far away from any man that would seek him, and is certainly not an image made from human hands. Paul quotes two Greek writers there. The first quote, for in him we live and move and have our being, is from Epi, Epinodius. Yep. <laughs> the second, that we are his offspring, is from Aratus. And it should be noted that nowhere in this is Paul quoting from the scriptures. Since his hearers don't believe in the Bible, don't believe that it has an authority, let alone that it is the word of the God, word of God, that would have been a waste of time to try and reason from there. But throughout all of this, he's been presenting biblical concepts. And the same is true today. Quoting the Bible to people that don't trust it will probably turn them off or raise walls. But we should be prepared to, to present biblical concepts in our conversations. Another reason for quoting these writers is the Athenians' own philosophers had taught that, that they were all dependent on God and had been created by him. But an important, a part of their, an important part of their religious tradition involved making idols to worship as gods and taking care of these idols. So Paul was trying to point out a contradiction by drawing upon their own philosophies. In essence, he was asking, if you are dependent on God, how can you make God who is dependent on you? If you are created by God, how can you create a God? And Paul was showing them the logical inconsistency of their religion. And after finding common ground and telling them who, Jesus, who God is, he now tells them what God says. So in verse 30. In the past, God overlooked such ignorance, and now he commands all people everywhere to repent. For he has set a day where he will judge the world with justice by the man that he has appointed. He has given proof of this by raising him from the dead. God had overlooked their ignorance in the past, but that time was ending, and God now has requirements of man, which are being revealed to him. He commands that all men everywhere repent. They need to change their minds about what is true, and then change their practices accordingly. And to fail to do so leaves people under God's judgment. Paul then directed his argument to the Epicureans, who denied that there was going to be any future judgment. He proclaimed the proof of this is in the resurrection of the one that God had appointed to bring this judgment. And this was as far as Paul was able to get before he was interrupted by those that 
you know, those that thought that they were wiser than Paul. And there were some responses that we saw. In verse 32, when they heard about the resurrection of the dead, some of them sneered, and others said, we want to hear you again on this subject. At that, Paul left the council. Some of the people became followers and believed. Among them was Dionysus, a member of the Areopagus, also a woman named Damaris, and a number of others. When proclaiming the truth about God, some will respond positively, some will want to know more, and some won't respond. That's a common theme that we see throughout the book of Acts, and it would be an experience that we've all gone through. Among those that responded positively that day, Paul mentions them by name, Dionysus, and a woman, Damaris. Well, they went on, and others, to become the nucleus of a church that formed in Athens. The Athenians did not believe that the gods, the Athenians did not believe that the gods that they had fashioned with their own hands had created the universe. They believed that Mother Earth had somehow arisen out of the dark void and had created these gods. But Paul was calling them to face the truth about the living God who created the earth and everything in it. He was calling them to repentance and faith because they faced a just and righteous judgment before Christ. These ideas were quite radical. The gospel will turn the world upside down for people. Submitting our lives to Jesus changes many things. To follow Jesus means to die to yourself. Some will lose family and friends. Others may have to change behaviours and learn to live a new normal. The gospel challenges what we worship and what we love. A Christian starts to live a life that's different to their own they're old once they accept Jesus. And for some, this is a hard truth to accept. That they will need to relinquish control of their idols and give their life to Jesus. And so this leads to opposition. And there will be opposition when we share the gospel. But friends, let's, let's bring this together. There are some, some important lessons that we can take from Paul's example while he was in Athens and apply that throughout our communities and our interactions today. Let's be sensitive to the Holy Spirit and aware of our surrounds with those that we interact with on a day-to-day basis. Let, let us let that move us into action, first by praying for salvation of specific people, then by entering into dialogue. Let's be proactive about putting ourselves into situations where opportunities for dialogue can be created. Through dialogue, respectively ask people what they believe and try and learn something about those things. Then identify common ground that can be used as a bridge for a conversation about God. Let's not directly attach, attack the religion of others because our goal is to glorify God and declare his true nature, not to go into war with people. And remember, our role is to be faithful and to do the best that we can to tell others about God. The results, though, are in God's hands. We can't intellectually convince and bring someone into belief and salvation. God needs to work on their heart. Our role is to point the way and to pray for them. In Adelaide today, if we had a chance to address the whole city, we probably wouldn't say, I perceive in every way you are very religious. If Paul visited 
What would he see in this city of churches? What idols do you see? What about in your workplace and your social circles? You may know someone who is big on social justice. Perhaps you would say, I perceive that in every way you are very concerned about social justice. For as I passed along, I saw your protests, your signs, and your social media feed. But what is social justice? And importantly, who gets to define it? Let me tell you about God who weaved justice into his creation that will hold people to account. God, whose very kingdom is based on the principle of the last will be first. And I'm sure you could build a dialogue from there. Something to think about this week is how would you answer the claim that all religions are the same? Our gospel needs to hear the city from us. Let's apply this passage into our lives. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for all that you have done to allow us to be close to you. We thank you for your word. We thank you for your spirit that prompts us, that helps us to understand who you are. We thank you for the faithful efforts of believers throughout the course of time who have spread your truths so that we could be here today as believers in you. We pray that you will strengthen us in the areas that we lack when it comes to sharing your truths. We pray for opportunities to share, for ears to be opened, so that more in our city will come to know your love and care. Help us to apply your word to our lives this week, and help us to be a community of believers, to encourage each other in our walk with you. Amen.